This is the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast, presented by eCity Interactive. eCity creates websites, marketing campaigns, and magic for higher ed institutions, large and small. Every digital challenge has a solution. eCity's talented team of problem solvers will help you find yours. And now, here's your host, Stephen App. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast, presented by eCity Interactive. Uh, I am your host, Stephen App. And moving forward, we're going to be chatting with everyone from the higher education space across admissions, marketing, and alumni communications. Uh, and I'm really excited. Our first guest today is Emily Brennan. She is the Senior Specialist in Digital Communications at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. In that role, Emily oversees all elements of Penn Law's digital communication strategy, from content curation to distribution, uh, reuse of digital assets across the web, email, social media, uh, she is a jack of all trades. She's also involved in website design and other interactive digital projects uh, at Penn Law. Emily Brent, I'm really excited. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And no pressure. This is the first episode, so everything rides on your performance. I know. Today. <laughs> your podcast will live or die based on my answers. <laughs> there may not be a second episode if this goes poorly. Well, I really appreciate you being here, um, and let's jump right into it. Let's start with talking about how this Tumblr blog came to be. Mm. Um, at the time, you know, law schools were not really worried about this. It was all about financial aid and scholarships and career prospects and rankings, of course, the, the all-important rankings. But you really focused on an area that wasn't a focus before. So can you take me through how you started uh, your Penn Law blog? Sure. Um, so I started at uh, Penn Law in... I think it was April or May or 2012, and at the time, um, kind of where the social media space was, um, Tumblr was misunderstood. I think it's still misunderstood. <laughs> um, and the account, we had the account created, my predecessor had created it, but there wasn't a lot of regular content there. And one of the things that I had done initially when I started at the law school was start a blog that ran on our website that was uh, basically dispatches from law students when they were at their summer associateships or summer positions or summer experiences in the field. And that was kind of a way for me to be generating content as a new employee who was there over the summer, <laughs> having not met any students or made those connections yet. When we started looking at different ways that we could have more student voices depicted in our content, uh, Tumblr seemed kind of like a native fit at the time because the age group that was using it were people who were in college or coming up to law school. So when we started the Penn Law Life blog series, that was uh, students who were um, who were involved in our various like admitted students and orientation. Uh, activities, and they were kind of a natural fit as brand ambassadors, so to speak. And really, I, I kind of said, ha have free reign with whatever you want to talk about. Um, try to do something different than what other people have talked about. But that was kind of the only guidance that I really gave them. And, and it was overwhelmingly positive that the students were really enthusiastic about it, that they all talked about different things. Some people kind of went deep dive on one anecdote of something that happened in class once with a favorite professor. Other people uh, pulled quotes from all their friends about what apartments they like to live in. Like it, it really has been such a wide variety of things that the students have come back with. And I'm continually impressed with um, the different ideas that they have because they're students. I'm not, I don't know, I can't really tell them what to write about. So they know what it's like to be a student at Penn Law. So they're kind of the best people to talk about it. 
And was that really the overarching goal of this mm-hmm. project was to give prospective students a glimpse at what a day-to-day would be like as a Penn Law student uh, and because they couldn't get that anywhere else, really? So Penn Law, you know, we talk a lot about collegiality at Penn Law. And a lot of, I think, law schools will tend to talk the same type of messaging beats. Or, and it's the same, not even among law school, among all of higher ed. And Penn Law genuinely is a really tight-knit community. It genuinely is not just marketing copy. It's, it is a really um, friendly, supportive community environment that you wouldn't necessarily assume an Ivy League institution has. So I think the goal of that was, A, to continue the success of the career dispatches um, and having students writing firsthand accounts of their experiences, but also to really show in their own words what it's like to be a student at Penn Law. And it genuinely is a lot of people who um, care about being part of a community. And what were some of the signs early on, or even you know, as this has become more established, that you had a success on your hands, that this was something that was well worth the effort, that you were going to keep on going with? What were some of those metrics that you were seeing, or mm-hmm. was it anecdotal, or maybe a combination of the both? But when did you realize this was a smart move for Penn Law? It, it was definitely a combination. Um, part of where that that hashtag Penn Law Life came from was because <laughs> at the time the the social media monitoring tool I was using um, kept picking up anything tagged Penn Law. Also, there's some movie with Sean Penn and Jude Law together, and Anytime that those two people were mentioned, it was also coming in my inbox. Pen Law Life was kind of a more specific filter to restrict that out. Uh, but people really embraced using that hashtag. And even though it was the title of a blog series that was really targeted towards um, potential admitted students or potential students, um, that they really started using hashtag Pen Law Life on Twitter or on Instagram. And it, it's still, uh, we see more stuff tagged with that than with Penn Law. I still check both. Um, hopefully not with Sean Penn and Jude Law anymore. <laughs> but um, th- that was that was kind of the biggest metric for me that people really do hashtag Penn Law Life. On Halloween, I saw someone doing Penn Law Death. Uh, <laughs> so, so the community has embraced it. Um, at, at, again, on Tumblr, um, in the early stages, we were getting a lot of likes or comments when they still had notes uh, as an older feature that was being utilized a, a bit. And even people who we weren't targeting um, on Twitter, like pre-law advisors or people um, in the legal space, were taking notice of it on Twitter, which usually the only stuff that really, really does well for us on Twitter is policy-minded because of the nature of um, and the people who are on Twitter tend to be journalists and reporters mm-hmm. and not necessarily students wanting to interact with their law school. So, right. Yeah. What has been the process for you in terms of content management? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned the students are given somewhat of a free reign to to write and share their thoughts. But what is the uh, mechanism for approving that content, editing mm-hmm. that content? You know, what's the workflow like for you? Sure. The workflow is pretty I mean, it's pretty straightforward in terms of um, I'll meet with the students when they have their initial meeting. Um, In the case of when we do career dispatches, I usually don't meet them. I'll just send out an email and try and make a connection that way and asking people, hey, you know, here's a doodle poll. Can you please sign up for a week? 
Um, I'd love to hear any ideas you might have. If you're stuck, feel free to contact me. But in general, here's what people have written in the past or here are some things we'd like to see. You don't have to, but this is these are some jumping off points for you. Um, and, you know, please send it to us about a week before your uh, blog is slated to go live. Generally, they get it to me on time. Um, and then our writer will look it over just to make sure that there's you no know, grammatical errors or to make it, you know, on style. Uh, lawyers love putting double spaces after periods. And <laughs> as someone who does That's, not... That is incorrect. Right, exactly. <laughs> so cleaning up, you know, very, very nitpicky formatting things. Uh, and then then I would schedule it to go up. And then when it was live, I would tell the student, hey, this is live. If you want to share it, go for it. Um, it's going to be going out on our main social media at this time. But if you'd rather post it on your page for now, go for it. And you've... Uh... You talked about doodle polls and reaching mm-hmm. out to students. How are you coming up with individuals to communicate with about writing? Because I think for a lot of people in higher ed, the idea of a blog, which is going to be driven by guest authors, I think the the primary concern here is identifying mm-hmm. guest authors on a regular basis. So what has been uh, your workflow for that and, and has it worked? Or do you have any advice for people who are maybe a little bit concerned about that? I mean, your best asset in in kind of identifying the right students, talk to your colleagues, talk to your peers. So talk to, you know, someone who you know in admissions, talk to someone who you know in um, career services, talk to someone who you know in student affairs. Uh, They will be able to identify people who not only exemplify kind of the type of things that you're looking for, but they also know who's really active in the community. They they may be able to get that student to answer that email from the random communications office person. Um, it, it really helps to kind of have uh, that extra connection to kind of network with the students, essentially, to, mm. to get those names. Now, you launched this blog, uh, you said 2012. Mm-hmm. So now we're in a, I mean, the media landscape changes rapidly. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned at the time it felt like a good fit. Do you still feel like publishing this blog on Tumblr as a platform is a good fit? Uh, and why or, or why not? Sure. We've been moving away from Tumblr a bit, actually. And, and it's one where I'm still not 100% sure why. Uh, it is generally was getting traffic only where from where I was sharing it on Facebook and Twitter. So we weren't really seeing that built-in platform traffic anymore. Um, and again, I'm not sure if it's the result of the buyout of Yahoo or, uh, you know, there's so many different things that have happened with Tumblr over the past five years that um, I, I wasn't sure what was the reason, but I just know what the numbers I was seeing, um, that the traffic was being driven by it being on other social networks. So... When Facebook Instant Articles started as a thing about a year or two ago, um, I kind of had the idea of, okay, well, maybe these pen law life text-based posts should be on something like Medium where it's automatically Instant Articles. Um, you know, a quirk of our the CMS that we're on, it doesn't necessarily really play well with Instant Articles. So that was an easy way for me to just kind of get around that system, uh, be able to still track statistics like how many people are reading it, you know, comments. It was a blogging platform that could bring in some native traffic that we weren't really seeing before. And it's also one that's more naturally suited to text-based content, which is what the Pen Life blog series was. Some of the other things that we had been posting on Tumblr were when faculty were on 
uh, NPR podcast and they posted it to SoundCloud or when we had a story that wasn't really long enough for the newsroom, but someone sent us a photo and a paragraph when we wanted to feature it somewhere. And different social media accounts for us have kind of taken over that for us. Um, we're using Instagram more. We're using Snapchat more. We're using, um, you know, even even our website um in terms of our website, our different departments have started their own little blogs on our CMS. So some of the stuff that was going on Tumblr was kind of being fed elsewhere in a way that kind of made more sense organically. So Tumblr just started making less and less sense for us. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, We'll be right back with more with Emily Brennan on Medium and Facebook Instant Articles. As you're thinking about new platforms, and you just mentioned Medium as an option for that, and and especially with its uh, ability to to have Facebook instant articles. So was was it also appealing to you because it was established, because you didn't have to build anything new from scratch the way you did with Tumblr? It definitely had a look and feel out of the box that we liked. It wasn't kind of off in its own ecosystem like a WordPress blog might be. So the appeal of maybe drawing a little bit of a different audience of people who are on Medium who are interested in reading more thoughtful, potentially longer text-based pieces uh, was intriguing to see where that went. And again, the, the instant articles um, appeal was was big for me. Facebook instant articles. Mm-hmm. My immediate concern is measurement and tracking. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about how Medium has kind of handled that for you guys? Sure. So we kind of have started posting the Medium only in the past few months. So I don't have a lot of data to be pulling from to speak to this. But we did a like year in review of our best news stories, tweets, Instagram posts, and we kind of compiled it on Medium. And what I liked about that is it gave us kind of a read ratio of how much time they were spending and how far down on the page they were getting automatically. I didn't have to set up any kind of Google Analytics events. It was very easy to just kind of put our content there and it was done. Um, and seeing what did well, like the first part, there was a four-part series. The first part um, had the most views, but the second two parts of it were the most read, which kind of threw me for a loop. And I and I have to attribute that to people viewing it on Facebook over winter break, because uh, that's when we posted it. And, you know, you think people are at home visiting their parents or wherever they may be for the holidays, and they're looking on their phone and they see a pen law um, year in review, they click it, it's optimized, it loads immediately, so you don't have to fight with your parents' Wi-Fi that you've spent the whole week fixing. It did well, particularly compared to the year before we had it on Tumblr. So I hope that that will continue to happen as we continue this year with our, you know, we're kind of in peak Pen Law Life blog season, so we're, we're hoping to see what happens with that. Is there a concern on your part at all that with your Tumblr blog, that was very Pen Law? It was on a third party, of course, but everything was very branded for you. With Medium, I imagine it's less so. And is that a concern for some of your administration? Because for a long time, the goal was web traffic, and that was very easy to measure. But with Medium, you're not in control at all about with that web traffic. So has that been a concern with anyone on your team? And, and if so, how have you remedied that? Or how have you uh, come to be okay with that? Sure. I mean, I think... Genuinely, I'm the one who's most concerned about using or leaving like a graveyard of accounts in my wake. Um, 
But that's mainly, you know, if people are Googling it or if it's still showing up on like our little you Google pen law and the, the card that shows up in the search bar is still linking to like old accounts and we don't want them to be there. I think the concern is more my own. Really, what kind of changed is when Instagram video or video on uh, Facebook and Twitter really started as a thing. We had all our analytics on YouTube, you know, so there was that whole thing of do we put the video on the other accounts and how do we account for that? Or is this part of our new reality that we're pulling this data from everywhere to reach people where they're at? And that is kind of, I think, what we're heading towards with some of our text content. Obviously not press releases or anything like that would ever be anywhere but our website. But I think um, because this is specific to students, it's really important to be reaching them where they live online, and that's on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, what's the best way for me to have a really lengthy text post that I want people to read? It's not going to necessarily be our website. So, you know, that medium has a tool to automatically do instant articles, meets that need. And if it means that I'm pulling together more data reports, then so be it. Because as long as, uh, you know, the people on my team have the numbers, they're satisfied. You mentioned... Graveyard accounts. Mm -hmm. And I want to explore that a little bit more because Medium has come into the news again uh, for reasons that they're not typically in the news for. And how do you wrestle with that balance of meeting your audience where they are, but also building on rented spaces that could any given day uh, post the press release that says they're maybe changing their business model? So, you know, how does that how do you wrestle with that? Oh, I mean, yeah, it, it was it was one where like as soon as we were like, yeah, OK, medium, like the next day <laughs> was the press release about, you know, their financial uh, potential financial uh, troubles. So, yeah, it's 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 I mean, there is no easy answer. It's 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 the trade off of um, being able to get that audience reach to be able to get those eyes or to get that um the number of impressions that you're looking for, the level of engagement, because people as individuals are trading off their possible privacy or their personal data to be using Facebook, Twitter, any of these social media apps. And, it, you know, I think that's kind of the deal you make when you're trying to be reaching people. Um, and, you know, it, we do get traffic on the Penlaw website, but I don't know that they're going to be navigating specifically to where my little corner of the Penlaw Life student blog is. So I know that I can get the kind of reach that we're looking for or potentially make an impression or have someone actually connect with the content um, when we're using these other services. So I think it's something that we all have to grapple with. I mean, it's the state of the web at large. So, you know, I kind of just shrug and <laughs> hope for the best because that's all you can do. You can't really control mm -hmm. um, what's going to happen. And you mentioned that early on in this Tumblr blog, it was everything was very text-based. You've mentioned text-based uh, mm -hmm. articles. But you also then you know, mentioned SoundCloud with podcast appearances or uh, videos that are now starting to, to be published a little bit more often with different channels like Instagram and Facebook being a little bit more native there. So how has the balance of content shifted for you as a, as a law school? Are you noticing now that you're uh, proactively publishing more video and audio and maybe at the expense of some of this text-based uh, material? So I think, I mean, particularly the nature of my specific position is that I 
do a lot with our website and our social media. So I know a lot of people who may be listening to this are only social media, our only website. Some people are one-person shops, so they have to do everything, video, text, and whatever. I, I'm lucky that I'm on a team that is built out where we do have people dedicated to video. We do have people dedicated to text. And kind of my role is to be either helping with that traffic flow or making sure that the content that they're creating is connecting with the audience it was intended for. I don't think that I'm feeling um, any pain points in that regard, but I know that, you know, higher ed is, is so wildly different. Law schools are so wildly different depending on what the staffing is. So it's I, I think it's definitely more difficult for some than others, but luckily at Penn Law, we, we've been able to, to do it really well. With so many options at your team's disposal between audio and video and text, how are you deciding how you want to tell a story? Sure. We, we have pretty regular editorial calendar meetings. Um, and a lot of times people will just email stuff to us. Sometimes it comes up in other meetings. Um, we are pretty active on Slack. So whenever we're having ideas, it's kind of turned into this amorphous constant stream of pitching or um, having different uh, things come to us. And, you know, when when we do get content or uh, an idea or some sort of kernel for a story, a lot of times it'll be a conversation about, okay, does this make more sense for text? Is this going to be the same picture of a bunch of people on a panel? Does this make, are they videotaping it? Can we use that video? Oh, if, if there's a really good quote from this, maybe I'll just make it a social media graphic. With the Supreme Court nomination that came out recently, um, we that was a text-based article where, you know, we knew that was coming. We were able to get email uh, from faculty as they came in, but I also turned that into an animated GIF because I prefer to say GIF and not GIF. Um, and I think that's correct. Use that on social media. So that was a way of showing a lot of different text-based content easily on Twitter or on Facebook. So you know, it's when we do have lead time like that, I do like to think about different ways that we can get it out there or repurpose it or you know, kind of find those different ways of storytelling. And I think it's it's a really good collaboration in our office. We mentioned blogs, newsletters, microsites. Do you have projects that kind of fall into each of those baskets? It's more and more becoming kind of a Venn diagram of <laughs> content and then just strategically thinking about where we can repurpose things, where things have been reused too much, perhaps, Um you know, trying to figure out what still has legs and what is overdone. Um, I think especially with blogs, newsletters, and microsites, you know, we have people who prefer to get content via email and they're not checking Facebook when it's finals. Or we have alumni who are not active on social medias because in the law space, let's face it, people are very concerned with privacy. So they may only be getting our content via email. So we, we try to... Um, again, you know, distribute our content in a multi-channel way so that depending on how people do like to receive content that is available there and that they are seeing these pieces of information, especially with with microsites, that's one, you know, I I feel like I keep going back and forth on it. Um, In general, on the whole, I think it's beneficial. But, you know, in terms of a long-term strategy, where, where those kind of move. I think it's really good for campaign-based information. I think it's really good for newsletters, for other things. You know, I'm, I'm not sure. Do you feel like that makes you better at your job, the, the fact that you get to see and you're forced to think of, of the entire spectrum? 
It certainly helps. It certainly helps in being effective. Um, I I feel like personally, I I like to try and be efficient in what we're doing, you know, kind of working on an economy of resources, which I'm sure all higher ed professionals are (laughs) used to. But and again, you know, Penn Law is, is a community where I don't feel hesitant or deterred from reaching out to people in our IT department or our alumni department for areas where we can collaborate. We had an annual report website that we put out. It was a microsite last year, and that was completely born of a collaboration with our alumni department that we had done a social media day of giving the year before. So, you know, you never know where you're going to find partners across campus who can help with with even driving your strategy. (laughs) Well, Emily Brennan, thank you so much for being on our very first episode Yay. of Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast. <laughs> uh, before we let you go, uh, tell our audience where they can find you. Sure. Um, well, first of all, I'd encourage everyone to follow the Penn Law accounts. We're at Penn Law on basically any social media channel that you can find us. Um, and personally, I'm Emily Bren with two N's on pretty much the same platform. So you can look me up. We want to make sure that we're we're spreading the love and giving everyone the recognition they deserve. So uh, who are some people in the higher ed space that you're a big fan of that's really a rock star and uh, that our audience should go find and follow? Yeah, so I'm going to pick some people who I don't think get enough attention. Um, I So I'm mainly thinking Twitter here because I'm most active there in terms of interacting with my peers <laughs> on the H-E-S-M hashtag. Um, I would say uh, John Gabriel at UCF is someone to look up. UCF I, being? Uh, sorry, University of Central Florida. Okay. I think med- medical school is where he's at. Karen Lee at the Stanford School of Business. They're super thoughtful in their approach, and I always like the articles that she posts. I would also say uh, Jamie Lewis at University of Georgia Alumni Association. I know people are working with different audiences out there, so you should throw someone in there who's into alumni. And they had some cool microsites and uh, campaigns come out recently that I liked. So. They are the people who I would give shout outs to. Well, again, thank you so much for for being on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I hope everybody else out there enjoyed this conversation as well. And uh, we'll see you. We'll see you next time. Bye.